Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dwalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I think you're going to enjoy today's episode, primarily because I'm bringing a guest on with me. You don't have to listen to me talk the whole time, but we get a lot of questions around real estate, lease versus own, benefits, detriments, How should you negotiate a lease, things to look at? I'm going to bring behind the microphone Colin Carr, founder of the Carr Healthcare real estate firm, to dive deep into a lot of subject matter that a lot of you have a lot of questions about. He's an expert. He's the founder of the business. He ought to know his stuff. We're going to put him to the test in just a few minutes. Get your pad and pen ready. Brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you once again for joining me on the show today and my guest, who is none other than Colin Carr, founder of the Carr Real Estate Agency. They focus in healthcare, and you probably have seen their brand and heard their name because they're almost in all 50 states. Colin, welcome to the show today. Perrin, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. This is a, an interview that I've been looking forward to for a while, and we are both pretty busy people because it felt like it took us a year to get it on the books. Maybe not quite that long, but let's make it worth the wait, right? You got um, it. So why don't we why don't we take it from the top, Colin? Um, and we've gotten to know one another a little bit, and and I think your brand, your name, your company. Um, is is pretty ubiquitous in the in the healthcare space and certainly in dentistry. But for those who aren't familiar uh, with you and and your company, can you take us just on a, a quick tour, a thirty thousand foot level of what y'all uh, what you do, who you are, and and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are a commercial real estate firm that exclusively represents healthcare providers with their commercial real estate needs. So anything that that deals with you as a practice owner, if it's a lease renewal, a renegotiation, if you want to buy a building, buy a condo, buy land and develop your own property, you want to relocate, you want to scale, anything that you want to do that's commercial real estate related for your practice, we handle. Uh, I started the company uh, just under 15 years ago, and the goal essentially was to help uh, just save healthcare providers a significant amount of time, save them a significant amount of money, help them avoid you know, all the costly pitfalls, complications, delays that people experience when they get into you know, high dollar negotiations for one of their largest assets, and then ultimately just bring peace of mind to the commercial real estate process. So you know, our tagline is, is, is maximize your profitability through real estate. And when you start looking at you know, real estate or facilities costs being typically the second highest expense behind payroll, there's a lot on the line that you can either either gain or win or you can lose. And so our, our game plan is 
anything real estate related for the practice owner. And as you mentioned, we're you know we're in uh, over forty states. We uh, transact coast to coast, and you know we represent thousands of providers every year with their with their real estate needs. Yeah, like you say, it's a it's a very big line item on a P and L, and it's also one that um, is not is not adjustable. <laughs> you know, it's once it's there, you, it, it's it's pretty well fixed. So, before we dive into some of the um, uh, some of your genius, some of your secret sauce, and and some the the ways for our audience to think about um, what all y'all do. Let's maybe start with some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry. Um, y'all cover sea to shining sea, uh, and and obviously we're all living through kind of a um, a challenging time in some ways. It's a it's a strange time in a lot of ways, and it's you know post pandemic, it's rising interest rates, um, it's changes in the the profession of dentistry for sure in terms of consolidation. But from a real estate context, how does that kind of play out? What are y'all seeing? What are some of the things that our audience can learn? Yeah, I mean, anytime you talk in real estate, you you got to start with the fundamental of just supply and demand. You know, how much demand is the market for the type of properties that people want to lease or rent or own? And and the answer to that question is, you know, if you're looking, or let me say this, if you're looking at you know traditional high visibility retail um, or medical office space or healthcare space or you know even mixed use office space, um, you know the demand is still pretty high. There, there's segments of commercial real estate right now. You know we're, we're recording this. You know summer of 23. There, there's some segments like large office users, large office space. That that market is struggling right now. Other markets like industrial real estate, like it's never been it's never been more on fire. They they cannot build warehousing and distribution spaces fast enough. Other areas like multifamily, they can't build apartment complexes fast enough. But you know, if you're looking at at, at traditional dental or medical space being retail or office, um, the demand is still very very strong. And then you couple that with the fact that you know, proportionately speaking, we've had we've had one of the lowest like past 10 years or decade of, of new development that we've experienced the last like 30, 40 years, comparatively speaking, there, there's just not, there's not a ton of new development in the retail and office space, believe it or not, um, commensurate with what we've seen in the past. The supply is is pretty tight. The demand is strong. And so, you know, it's still a pretty competitive market. Um, not everywhere. Again, it's different. If you're talking about like, you know, Miami, Florida versus Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's differences with with markets and so forth. But it's a pretty competitive market out there. Um, it's by no means where we were back in like 2009 and 10, where the, you know, the market just collapsed and there's huge vacancy rates and it was a tenant's market. It, it's still pretty much a landlord's market right now um, because there's just not a ton of options for a lot of people out there. So, um, you know, Competitive market, but I'd say this: there's still great opportunities to capitalize, and if you have the right strategy, uh, you can still uh, end up in a really favorable scenario. Yeah, yeah. I it, I live in Charlotte, uh, as most of our audience knows, and we're a we're a banking town here. B of A, Wells, a lot of others, um, and a lot of that uh, real estate market and some of the larger buildings uptown um, has kind of gone sideways a, a bit. But at the same time, the overall city is experiencing um, a, a retail and a residential boom around it. And and it's just kind of an interesting market to live in if, if you sort of start taking apart different facets of it like that. So um, good, uh, good insight from you. And thanks for sharing that, obviously. So let, let's go through 
um, a thought process. And we get this question a lot from a lot of our group practice owners. Many uh, traditional solo dentists own their real estate um, and their tax advantages, um, portfolio diversification advantages, and a lot of compelling reasons to do that. When you start getting into a group uh, scenario, there's limited capital available. And, and uh, we typically give our guidance uh, to our, our clients to invest that limited amount of capital into the practice side versus the real estate side uh, because they get a better return, especially if they're planning for exit. So thinking on the buy versus lease piece, do you want to you know, take apart some of the different thought processes between those two and the way y'all approach uh, clients differently that are looking to own their own real estate versus those that are simply looking to um, uh, sign a lease on something. Yeah, I mean, I, like you said, there, there's different philosophies. You know, we have we have group practices that um, do not want to own, like you said, they want to take all their capital and, and every opportunity they have to to buy more practices, start more practices, and that makes sense. In those scenarios, we're we're looking to capitalize at the highest level on every lease. We, we obviously want the most competitive lease rates, um, but we're looking for the highest TI allowances to help uh, to help reduce how much money has to be borrowed every time you open a new location or every time you renovate. Um, we're looking for the highest free rent allowances, and then we're looking at other aspects. Um, you know, just trying to be as competitive as possible with annual increases, with exposure for who pays for what in different scenarios. And then there's also all sorts of other non-business concepts that we're going after too. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to minimize your limit or eliminate personal guarantees, depending on how it's structured. We want to make sure that we have the right assignability provisions so that if you want to transition out of a, of a location or, or all of your practices that you're not still on the hook personally or your practice, your group's not still guaranteeing some asset that you don't actually own anymore. So, you know, if it's a lease, we're great with that. I mean, that's 90% of the market is lease versus purchase anyways. So we're just trying to capitalize. And then we also have some groups that that do want to own. And there's some structures where they want, you know, they have a separate uh, a separate entity that owns all the real estate. And then we have other groups where they just pull money together individually. So, so you know, we have, we have a couple of groups where, you know, they, they lease everything. Um, from the practice side, but then a handful of the primary participants in the group um, buy the real estate individually, and they've kind of put together a fund for that. And so we, we have it across the board. But really for us, we're going to go to market for almost every client, look at the top options at lease, look at the top options to purchase, present them. And there's times when when you don't have a choice. There's times when there's nothing that's that's valid or viable to purchase. And even if you want to, you have to lease if you want the best location, the best terms. I mean, you could pick a dramatically inferior location or property, but that's not going to help your practice, which is the the engine behind this thing. So there's times where even if you want to own, it's not it's not a viable option or it's not your best choice. And then there's times where where the purchase does make the most sense, and it is the by far the best location or opportunity. And I think it does make sense still to look at is there a way to you know individually purchase the property or you know, you know, buy it as maybe some of the principles and then still lease it to the practice to where it's not hitting the balance sheet of the practice or the group, but it still allows you to get into the best property. So for me, that's my theme. It's what's the best property that's going to make the practice as successful as possible. And you can still engineer a deal either way if you want to. 
Yeah, sound advice. I mean, uh, financial flexibility is kind of key as it relates to that because those are those are different uh, structures involved with it. You you mentioned two of them that uh, we do hit on a pretty good bit. That's assignability and personal guarantee. And I think um, if we can spend maybe just a, a little bit of time around those because I, I think these are these can be poison pills um, in the scenario of your if you're trying to sell a group practice and your lease is not assignable or there's no baked in release from the personal guarantee. So uh, for for those in our audience who are not familiar with the concept of uh, a lease being assignable, can you maybe break that apart just a little bit and let's talk about the impact of it and, and why we want it to be assignable or, or under what, what circumstances we want it to be assignable? Yeah, absolutely. So it's very common in leases to talk about a provision. Either it's called usually either a sublease and assignability clause. Sometimes they'll break them down individually, but a sublease clause means that if you want to bring in somebody else that's not your entity, that they can still occupy a portion of the space. Like let's say, let's say you have an orthodontist practice and you want to bring in a pediatric dentist for a few days a week or some scenario there. Can you bring in another entity? And a lot of times landlords will just let you do whatever you want with that. But sometimes they do have criteria like if they're leasing more than a certain percentage of the space or more than a few times per week that they're in the space, that they have to get their approval. So you want to make sure you have a good sublease provision. Um, most time landlords are pretty flexible with that. The, the more advanced one is the assignability clause. And that says, hey, if I want to vacate ownership of, of my practice or business or if I want to transfer the rights to this space as a tenant... Um, can I do that? And there's there's two main things here. The first question is, is, do you have an assignability clause? Can you do that? The answer should be, yes, you do have that, or yes, you'll get that if you're doing a deal. Um, but that doesn't fully accomplish the mission, as you were indicating, because you could have an assignability clause saying, yes, you can assign it. But if it's silent regarding um, the release of you as a guarantor or or the release of you you know, fulfilling your obligation too. If that if that assignee uh, violates the lease, breaks the lease, has a breach, et cetera, the landlord can still come back after you financially. And so having an assignability clause, meaning you can transfer the rights or the interests of your lease to another tenant is step one, but you've got to have a trigger that says you will be removed as the personal guarantor or, or any and all obligations will be transferred from you to the new tenant. And that's where a lot of people miss it. They get an assignability clause, but they don't have a release. They go to sell their practice and the landlord says, sure, we'll take the new person. Basically, it's a double guarantee at that point, but then they don't want to release the, the assignor or the existing tenant. And that's the equivalent of like you selling your house and then being a guarantor for the new buyer. Like it's not your house. You can't legally step foot into the house. Someone else owns it, but yet you're still on the hook for them. That's a, a bad place to be, but... A lot of people find themselves there. And then the alternative is, well, how do I get out of that? And typically it's, you have to pay for it. Like you have to, you have to get the landlord financially motivated to release a guarantor. And a lot of times they're not. Yeah. So, so that right there that you just concluded your thought on is, uh, is the crushing moment because to further set the context where this becomes a problem is that if you're selling your, your group practice, and you have uh, a lot of dollars at stake and you're in the closing process and your uh, buyer wants um, you know, to, to see the, the lease and have a, 
um, uh, the, the likelihood of being able to occupy the space for an extended period of time, not have to move the practice. In other words, they're not going to buy the business if, they, if they're in jeopardy of not being able to operate the business or if they have to move it abruptly. And when the landlord doesn't move quickly or there needs to be some type of a payoff to get that uh, assignability clause in, um, then there is going to be a holdup in the deal. And when you can think about the magnitude of the impact that one, one small-time landlord could hold up an entire transaction on account of the lease not being able to be reassigned to a more creditworthy buyer, now we're in a world of hurt. And, and after we've been through an emotional process to begin with, this is just one of those Achilles heels that doesn't need to happen. So thank you for, yeah. for spending a little bit of time on that, Colin. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it also happens, as you know, where sometimes you want to peel off a location or two to maybe a sole practitioner or a smaller group. I mean, th there's the idea that, yes, you build something up and then you, you know, you're a certain size fish and you get swallowed up by a bigger fish. But there's also the scenario where maybe you want to peel off a location and, and you're going to find the right buyer as an individual practitioner or smaller group. Well, the landlord then looks at your financials versus theirs and says, mm, I'm not really excited about trading out you for the smaller person. And, and this is something I know we're talking about group practice, but this is something that happens almost every transaction where it's a sole practitioner selling. You get a 60-year-old dentist selling to a 30-year-old dentist. Well, who do you think has better financials? Of course, it's the senior doctor typically. And so this this one comes up whether whether you're individual doctor, individual practice, or your group. There is a way to get a specific clause or language or terminology where it's the sale and the creditworthiness of the person being able to acquire the practice or the group. That's the criteria for being released. And if if you do it properly, you're going to save yourself a lot of uh, a lot of problems. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. We do see divestitures of practices a halfway decent amount, but I didn't even really think it through from that context. But you're you're right. Um, it does it does play downstream um, uh, very very frequently. I can see that. Um, good good point. So let's uh, let's move into leases themselves. Uh, you teased this at the opening, um, you know, saying that it was the second largest uh, expense um, aside from payroll, which uh, is true. And this is one that, you know, people are in a rush to sign a lease because they kind of fall in love with the space and everything like that. And they just want to get going. Um, but they, they fail to realize that they're going to have to live with uh, the parameters of this for quite a long time, and it's a it's a variable on the P and L that, for all intents and purposes, does not change. Um, and and y'all do a really nice job of talking about the amount of dollars that people are literally leaving on the table, and and how that can directly impact valuation dollars um, at the point of sale too. Not that everything's oriented just strictly at sale, but um, when we talk about EBITDA margins, this is a biggie. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what you what you typically see and in, in some of the uh, ways that y'all approach um, lease negotiations and, and the way you kind of think about this on a forward-looking standpoint for your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's start with with the the, the most important aspect is people say, well, if it's a if it's a true de novo or startup, I, I want to get in the space, I need to get open. And, and we understand that time is money, times of the assets, et cetera. If it's an acquisition, 
people are typically focused on, I don't want to lose the deal. I don't want to make the landlord mad, et cetera. And that's valid too. But but neither of those concepts um, is to the detriment of the fact that you should be getting the most favorable terms possible. There's a margin in every lease that you can negotiate. And it's typically multiple dollars per square foot. And if you take three, four, five dollars a square foot times 3,000 square feet and do the math, I mean, it's it's typically, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars over a 10-year period, depending on the size of the space and the term. And then you take other concepts like, you know, free rent. A lot of people are not paying attention. That is a major concession you should be achieving on a lease renewal or a new lease. And a lot of people don't go after that concession and I mean, think about it, it, you know, three, four months of free rent, that could be, that could be at, at 10, 12,000 a month in rent, it could be 30, 40, $50,000 in savings every time you renew your lease or, or open a new location. If you've got 50 practices and every five years you renew your lease and every five years you save $50,000, or let's just say, let's say 10 of your leases renew every five years just to use that, you know, for every, every year in a five-year cycle, you know, that's a couple hundred thousand dollars towards your bottom line that you could be achieving versus losing. So there's concepts like free rent, there's concepts like tenant improvement allowance, where people are leaving a lot of money on the table, and then you're having to deploy more capital out of your pocket to renovate spaces or to improve, or you're borrowing that money and you're paying, you know, six, seven, eight percent interest on that money for the next 10, 15 years. And it's to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars per location. So Long story short, there's there's a handful of areas where you can really capitalize and you're not jeopardizing losing the deal. You're not jeopardizing not being in the space in the same speed or the same time frame. And certainly if you're acquiring, it's, it's not going to kill the deal. So it, it's we have just we've seen some larger groups saying, hey, don't ask the landlord for anything. We don't want to jeopardize the deal. And our response is you're not jeopardizing the deal by asking them for what they already assume you're going to ask them for. Like if Starbucks is going to go do a lease renewal or acquire a new space, like of course they're going to be asking for the same things. They're not worried about losing the space. Like they're trying to capture the best terms possible. If Chipotle is doing, they're going to do the same thing. If Charles Schwab, if it's Chase, it doesn't matter who it is, they're going to capitalize. And so a lot of times people get they get scared they're going to lose a deal or lose the space or not get in in the same time frame, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can you can achieve your goals, but also still capitalize economically as well. Yeah, very very well said. Um, and obviously, that's the difference in representing yourself versus working with a professional such as yourself and your team that uh, um, that is able to understand um, that. I mean, you'll do this every every hour of every day on a daily basis, you know. And whereas a a, a, a typical client of ours is only going to do this a couple of times over the course of their career, probably. So yep. it's it's worth it to to work with professionals. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your team and and you know what makes you different. Uh, you said that y'all have quite a few uh, uh, agents all across the United States. You know, break it down for the audience and just let us know kind of what makes you different versus any other um, agent that they may encounter. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got we've got over 150 agents across the country. And so we've got people that are that are in most major markets. They're they're market experts. They understand the the different climate, the demographics, the economic indicators and drivers of those markets. Again, it's very different being located in like Miami, Florida versus Grand Rapids, Michigan. There's just a difference in the economy and what's happening there. And so they're market experts locally. 
and they really understand what's happening. They, they've got a, uh, you know, they've got a, an ear to the ground. They know the owners, the developers, the brokers. And so they can bring market intelligence to a transaction and, and just really give you confidence and understanding, look, there's four or five other properties here that would compete for your occupancy or tenancy. Even if you don't want to move or even if you don't want to relinquish this location, we can still use those properties as leverage to get this landlord to play a ball at the level that they should or that they would if it was someone else. So we have the market intelligence aspect. And then we also have um, a very significant, uh, we call it our national accounts department. And you don't have to be national to participate in it, but we've got you know tremendous demographics, due diligence, competition, heat mapping, a lot of different resources if you want it. Um, but what we do in those scenarios is we typically assign an account manager to the individual account. So if, if you've got 40 locations and you're trying to add 10 per year, you need to have a real estate strategy if you want to maximize your investment and maximize your asset. And so in that scenario, we can have one person who knows your world at the highest level. They speak with you or whoever's over your real estate. But then when you're looking at all these different markets, they will tap the local car agent in each one. So you still have full control, but you've got a single point of contact that then works with three, five, 10, or 15 other agents, however many that are needed. And so you've got a you've got a um, a consolidated real estate team on your side that's helping with the process. So our our national accounts department, you know, we have clients that we've taken from one or two locations to to over a hundred. You know, we have some clients where they have over a thousand locations. We manage everything for them, all the dates, all the deadlines, all the key terminology, and we basically eliminate them having to have a several hundred thousand dollar or you know million dollar real estate team we take care of it all in-house and then give them the information, the dates, the deadlines. They still make the final decisions, but we take it off their plate so they can be more focused on growing the business. Man, that's great because um, that that does add up to real dollars in, in quite a hurry when you're trying to keep all those uh, um, deadlines and everything and, and um, uh, on track and, and organized. I mean, that is, I remember from the corporate America days when I used to run a couple of different businesses for Patterson and we did relocate one of the branches that I was in and we worked with a national, a local agent for a national company in the same vein that you're talking about. And it made it so much easier for me being the person that was operating the local branch in terms of finding the next location and then dealing with all the logistics and everything that went along with it. So there is a a, a lot of bang for the buck. And that is for, for our clients that are uh, emerging businesses, all too often they haven't worked in a corporate America type of a setting and they don't know how things are really done at a national level like that. The enterprise level DSOs certainly do. Um, but for those who are looking to take that next step and um, managing the real estate piece of a growing business is critically important. So, yep, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the top elements that comes into play here is people say, well, I don't want to give up control. And you're, you're not giving up any control. You're, you're maximizing your time and efficiency, but you still determine everything. You determine the parameters of what people are looking at for you of the timeframes, they, they give you information, but you're determining all that. And then you're basically just not wasting your time. Like there's no reason for, you know, someone in a business, whether it's a, a emerging DSO or a large one, there's no reason for them to go out and then, you know, look at 25 properties, do due diligence, narrow things down to the top four or five properties, and then spend, you know, weeks or months negotiating four or five rounds with those people. Like there's just no reason to do that. Someone will do that on your behalf 
bring you all of the information, bring you all the data points. You determine you know the, the level of counter, how aggressive you want to be, the timeline, what you're willing to to take or concede on. And so you you maintain full control. You just have someone doing a lot of the work for you. And it's it's a really efficient way to do things. And that's how every Fortune 500 company works. Like there's no Fortune 500 company that has like main executives running around figuring out they hire outside agents or they have an internal team that does it for them that's trained exclusively because they're just more uh, more adept at making it happen. Yep, yep. This has been uh, uh, great, Colin. I mean, this has uh, been a tour de force as I knew it would be. Are there are there any uh, additional areas that, that you'd like to expound upon that we haven't hit on today that I might have missed? Yeah, I, you know, I'll maybe kind of give a quick list of a few things people do where they they really have a bad strategy or they they're losing a lot of money. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean this is a, a topic where we could hit a number of things. And this isn't meant to like poke poke at people. It's just meant to just identify here's areas where you're losing money or there's probably a better game plan. But there, there's a mindset in commercial real estate or any real estate. Well, if you do it yourself, you're going to save money. And that's true if you are the owner of the property determining whether or not you're going to pay commissions. Like if you want to do a for sale by owner, have at it. But when you're a tenant or a buyer, you're not the one determining commissions. You're not the one determining who's getting paid. So a lot of times providers will say, well, I'm just going to do it myself and save money. But but what they don't realize is the landlord's still paying their agent, typically a double commission that's built for two people. And so 90% of the time, a double commission is going out, just the listing agent's keeping the whole thing. Um, and so you're not saving a dime. You're just actually wasting your time. And then you're you're proving that you don't have the expertise because if you were serious, you'd have someone who was specialized or the landlord just keeps that money. And so th- that's a big mistake. The do-it-yourself approach is fraught with a lot of you know pitfalls, but, but typically the same amount of money that would have gone to pay your agent just goes to the listing broker or the landlord keeps the money. Landlords love to say, if you don't use an agent, I'll give you a better deal. And they're they're laughing all the way to the bank. That's the equivalent of the, they'll tell you, hey, it's 25 cents each, but if you want to pay in bulk, I'll charge you three for a dollar and, and give you a deal. And people just hear statements like, oh, it's a better deal or I'll save you money. The landlord does not care about you and they just played you for the full. So it's the equivalent of like trusting an insurance company. Well, hey, just don't don't double check your reimbursements. We'll make sure you get everything that that's owed to you. Like nobody would be foolish enough to believe that. But then when a landlord says, if you don't use an agent, we'll give you a better deal, they bite off on it. Oh yeah, that's great. So that's that's one. Um, another thing people are doing at a high level is they think if they go in there and they don't ask for any tenant improvement allowance or free rent, the landlord's going to give them a better deal, and that is also not the case. Um, and I'll use one quick case study. There's a, a very large DSO that has 100 plus locations. And we first started talking to them and said, what's your real estate strategy? And they said, well, we go to every landlord and we say, well, if we don't use an agent, if we don't get any free rent, and if we don't get any tenant improvement allowance, what's the best you can do? And I said, well, what are you benchmarking that against? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, would you get the response from the landlord? What are you comparing that to? And they said, well, nothing. We just assume that's their best offer. And again, our response is that's probably the worst real estate game plan we've ever heard. And so the only way you could do that would be to get a real offer from the landlord first with an agent's fee, with a free rent package, with the TI allowance, and then say, if we back all of it out, would you back it out proportionally? And if it's not dollar for dollar, then you left money on the table. You would have been better off to get some level of TI, some level of free rent, some level of et cetera. 
Otherwise, you're, you're not actually backing out of the deal. You're just hoping that they gave you a better deal. And so landlords have a certain lease rate where they will not go below that lease rate. And I'm talking I'm talking in the majority of scenarios. There's always some one-off landlord, do something weird. But most, most sophisticated landlords have a lease rate where they will not go below that lease rate because it devalues the property. However, at that same lease rate, they'll give you a very healthy tenant improvement allowance a very healthy free rent package, and they're expecting to pay a broker's fee. So as an example, let's say that they won't go below $30 per square foot, but they would do $30 a square foot and give you $100,000 or $150,000 for build out. They'd pay a broker's fee. And then they would also give you like, let's say four or five months free to build out and then four or five months free when you move in. Well, you get eight or nine months of free rent. You have a commission in there and then you've got $30, dollars $50 a square foot of tenant improvement allowance, again, $100,000, $150,000. That's a lot of money. There's, a couple, there's over a quarter million dollars for you as the practice owner, but they're not going below $30 a square foot, whether you take that or whether you leave it on the table. And so that's another area we see, especially larger groups just missing it is they assume if they don't take any of those concessions or they don't take some of them, the landlord is just, just backing that out of how much their net is and that's not how they operate. There's a threshold where they won't go below it. And then even with that lowest lease rate, they'll still give a considerable amount of benefits to lease from them. And so again, the only way you figure out if you got the best terms possible is if you're talking to multiple landlords, you're going multiple rounds of negotiations, you're, you're pushing them, you're leveraging one versus the other. Even on a renewal, you say, I don't wanna move. That has nothing to do with you having a strategy and going to market. Starbucks might not want to move that location, but they're going to market finding three or four other properties that want to play ball and figuring out what they're willing to offer. And then they use that information as leverage against their current landlord to make sure it's as competitive as possible. You might choose at the end of the day to pay a premium to stay where you're at, but it should still be, it should still be commensurate with what other owners are willing to do. And so I will land the plane on that one. That's a mouthful, but just understand this. You're not saving money doing it yourself. You're not saving money having an internal team. And if you're going to a landlord and you're specifically saying, what will you do for me if I don't have this, this, or this, unless you get the offer first of what it would look like if they had it, and then ask if they'd back it out dollar for dollar, which I guarantee they will not, you're leaving a ton of money on the table. And most larger groups, whether it's dental, medical, that, optometry, doesn't matter, the industry, most people that they don't have a strategy if they're they're leaving a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on the table for every transaction they do. And if you're doing three or four or five a year or ten per year, you you take that ten times a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. that's how much money is getting left on the table, believe it or not. And you can you can improve your p and l and you can make your practice worth literally millions of dollars more if you have a strategy in the real estate area. Man, that's a uh, that's a great way to end it right there. What a tour de force. Our our audience is better for having you on today, Colin. I thank you very much for your your time and expertise. That was uh, that was tremendous. How can we we will link to all this in the show notes? But how can our audience connect with you, your team, uh, learn more about what all you do? Absolutely. So best way to get a hold of us is our website, and that is car.us, C-A-R-R.us. If you have a need in a certain market, you can you can go to that market, find an agent, um, and just contact one of our agents there. We also have a national accounts tab if you want to talk to somebody about what it would look like to have your 
organization represented and run at a high level, at a sophisticated level, um, you can go to our national accounts tab and you can click to get a hold of one of our national accounts agents. And then they can set up a time to walk you through how we can assist you as well. Really, really good stuff. I, I appreciate your time, your expertise, being with me and being with us on on today's show. And as I said, it's a, a real learning opportunity for all of us and, and very enlightening. So I, I look forward to having you back at some point in the future and certainly looking forward to working with you and your team uh, more solidly moving forward together as well. Thanks so much, Colin, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. And as I said before, uh, we will link uh, in the show notes to Colin's information, their website, uh, contact into all that kind of good stuff so that you can find out more about him, what all they do and what makes them great. But I think you picked up on probably all of that in today's show. If you've got questions about anything you heard today uh, and you want to drop me an email directly, my contact information obviously is perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.